With Hashem's assistance, we are learning Baba Kama Daf Kuf Hey, page 105. We begin eight lines in, towards the end of the line. Chutz mipachas shavaputa bekeren v'chuli. We said in the Mishnah that if, let's say, the person who had been stolen from forgives the person who stole from him, except for a very small amount, less than a shavaputa, or less than the value of a pruta. So we said he does not have to run after him to wherever the person who stole does not have to run after the person who was stolen from to find them to pay back that very small, minute amount. Omer Papa Papa says, This is that we said that he doesn't have to run after him is only if the original article that was stolen is not still extant. If this article that was stolen is still around, even if he forgave him, and the only amount that he didn't forgive him was the amount less than a shavapruta, less than this value of a pruta, he still has to run after him. Why? Because we're afraid that that small amount, that small value that he left over, so it might actually go up in value. Because we're not talking about where he owes him money, since the gazela, the stolen object is here, so he really has to give him the stolen object itself. So when he's mochel, when he forgives him for everything except for a certain amount, that small amount, so that object itself remains that it still has to be given back. So therefore, when it goes up in value, value, so it will end up being worth more than a pruta, worth more than the minimum value that is necessary to run after him for, and therefore you will have to run after him. Ikadamri, there are those who say, Amar Papa, there are Papa says, Leishnagzelekayemis, doesn't matter if we're talking about a case where the stolen object is still around, where it's not still around, it's not necessary for him to run after him, why? Because we're not worried that this object is going to go up in value, and therefore there's going to be more than a pruta that's left over that he's going to have to run after him for. Amar Rav, Rav says, If someone steals three bundles, and altogether they're worth three prutos, so each one of them had the value of a pruta, and the pruta, we must remember, is the minimum value that's necessary to run after a person if he's gone to a faraway land to return his money. Of course, it's always necessary to return the money, even if we're talking about less than that, but that's what we're talking about. But who's Luva Amdu Ashtayim? Now, each one of these three things, so it became worth less, so altogether they're worth only two prutos. So now, Im Hechser so if he returns them two out of those three bundles, so now all he owes him is something that's worth less than a pruta, less than the minimum value that it's necessary to run after him for. Nevertheless, he's still obligated to run after him in order to return the third one, even though it's worth less than a shav pruta. And Rashi explains and that the reason is that since it was originally worth a pruta, since it originally had that value, we don't go by the current value, but rather we go by the original value it was worth when it was stolen. And therefore there still is an obligation to return this bundle, even though now it's worth less than that minimum value that ordinarily would be necessary to run after him for. Here you would have to. Vitanatuna, we have a brisa like this as well, stating like Rabbi says, Let's say somebody steals bread and then it passes over at Pesach, Passover passes over it, so now it's forbidden from getting any benefit from it. Nevertheless, he can still say to him, as long as the stolen object is there, the stolen bread, he can say to him, take your thing as is. Too bad on you. Time of this, so now the Gemara says, we can make a diuk, we can deduce something from this. It's only because the thing is still around in its original status. It's still here. It hasn't been lost. But let's say it wouldn't be around in its original state. Even though now it doesn't have the original value, it doesn't have any value at all, because it's bread that Passover has passed over it, and therefore it's worthless. Since it originally did have that value, he would have to pay for the original value. So, so to over here, even though now it doesn't have the value of a pruta, these bundles, since originally it did have the value of a pruta, it would be necessary for him to run after him and to give him back this last thing, even though now it has a lower value. Boy, Rabbi, Rabbi asks the following question. Let's say somebody stole two packages, two bundles, and together they're worth one pruta. So each one is worth half a pruta. 
He only returned one of them. Mahu. What do we say? Do we say that he no longer has a full value of a gzela, of a stolen object? What, he, what he's stolen that's left is only half a pruta. Or perhaps, he has not completely returned the gzela, the stolen object. So therefore, he would have to return it to Havigabe. It's still considered that it's by him. So he then answered, The stolen object isn't here, and there's no returning. So the Gemara says, hold on, what does that mean? What does he mean when he says this? If it's considered that the stolen object is not here, then it should be considered that he's already returned it. If, he, if it's no longer considered that he still has a thing that was stolen. So the Gemara says, no, this is what we mean. Even though the, it's no longer considered that the person who stole still has the object that he stole, because half of it is gone, and he only has half a pruta left, nevertheless, the mitzvah, the fulfillment of the commandment of returning, he has not done. And therefore, it would still be necessary for him to return completely. He hasn't done even a Shavaprut the worth of returning. He hasn't returned something that's worth that value, that minimum value of being considered that he gave him something. Therefore, he has to completely return both Agudas, both of those packages that together are worth one pruta. And Ravid tells us the following statement, Hare Amru, Behold, they said, Nazir Shigileach. We have a Nazir, so for his 30-day period that he's a Nazir, he's made himself holy unto God, so he doesn't drink any wine, he doesn't shave his head. At the end of this period of time, so then he's obligated to indeed shave off all of his hair. So now, the obligation is to completely shave his head. So if Vishir Ach, Vishir Shtesaris, let's say he left over two hairs on his head, it's not considered that he's properly fulfilled the obligation to shave off his head. So now Rava asks a question based on this. Let's say he shaved off one of those two hairs that was left, and the other one fell out. Mahu, what's going to be the halacha? Do we consider it as if he has indeed finished the shaving or not? So Rav Achamidifti asks Ravina, Rav is asking a question in a case where he's, he's shaving off one by one, and Rashi explains the question is that of course if he shaved them off like this, first he shaved and the last one fell out. So when he started shaving, so as long as you have two hairs left, there's a significant shaving that's happening, even if one of them actually ends up falling out on its own. Since when he starts shaving, and that's the first thing that he does is he shaves the first hair. So since there were two then, so it's considered that he started and he did something significant. So that can't be the Shailah of Rava. Omar Lay, so he responds to them like this. No, we, we do need it for the following case. Of those two hairs that were left, actually the first one fell out on its own, and then all he did was shave the last one. That in, in any event right now, so there's no hair that's left that's significant, and therefore perhaps it's considered that he has shaved his hair. Or perhaps we say, It is not considered a proper shaving. Because originally when he shaved and he left over two hairs, so he didn't completely shave. And now when he's doing the last hair, it's not a significant shaving because you don't have two hairs to shave. So basically it seems that the question is, do we look at it that the Torah, when it says that we want, that the Torah wants this guy to be bald, is it that the Torah wants him to be bald? Or does the Torah want him to do a proper shaving to get him to the point of being bald? And the difference will be in the, exactly in this case, because here he hasn't done a proper completion of the shaving, but nevertheless he is bald. Or perhaps do we say that the Torah specifically wants that this person do a proper shaving and he hasn't done that? So then he answered this question by saying as follows, that at this point there's no hair, and there's also no shaving. Gemara says, hold on a second. If it's considered that he has no hair, then it should be considered that he has done a proper shaving. Gemara says, no, this is what he means. Even though there's no hair here, there still is not considered that he's properly done the commandment of shaving the head.
Because the bottom line is that the Torah doesn't just want him to be bald, but rather the Torah wants the person to do a proper shaving. And this person hasn't done a proper shaving. Rav says another statement. Hare Amru, behold, the sages said, Let's say you have a barrel that has a hole in it. And the hole was closed up by dregs. It has the ability to prevent any kind of impurity from getting through the barrel. What's the case? So Rashi explains. You have, we have to imagine now. We have a two-floor apartment, a two-floor house. Each floor, in our imagination, let's think of only one room on each floor. That's the whole apartment. So now the idea is in regards to impurity, if there's a dead body inside of a room, and you're inside of the room, even if you're not touching the dead body, you're going to become impure. If you're under the same roof, you're impure. Now if there's a hole between the lower floor and the upper floor, so that impurity has the ability to shoot up to the top floor as well, and anyone who's on the second floor will also become impure. Now let's say you fill up this hole with a barrel, and that barrel also had a hole, but the hole was filled with dregs, so the dregs are going to be considered that the hole is filled, and therefore the impurity will not shoot up to the second floor. That's what Rav is saying. Boy Rav, now Rav asks the question, Agav mahu. If let's say you have this hole, and you fill up half of the hole, instead of being filled with dregs, you fill half the hole with cement. What's going to be the halacha? And Rashi explains that the question is that there are two possible ways to look at it. Again, a similar type of question to the previous question. And that is, do we look at it as if, lamaisa, if we look at it now, so there's, there's not enough of a hole to allow the impurity to pass through? Or do we say that no, in order for it to be considered closed up, you have to do a proper closing. You have to actively close it up, and you haven't completed closing it. So Rav Yimar says the Ravashi, Isn't this question actually an explicit Mishnah? The Tanam, we said in the Mishnah, If you have a barrel that had a hole in it, and it was closed up with dregs, like we mentioned before, so that prevents the impurity from passing through the barrel. Let's say instead of it being closed up by the dregs, which completely closed it up, it was closed up by a branch, so there's still little holes in it. So until you've completely closed up the little holes with cement, so it's not considered closed. Let's say you had two branches closing up the hole. Not only do you have to place cement between the the branches and the sides, but also you have to place cement between the two branches. Time of the Marach. So he says the indication here is that what's the reason why it's considered good? It's only good because you you completely closed it up with cement. The indication is if you hadn't completely closed it with cement, that it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't protect it. It wouldn't prevent impurity from passing through there. So if indeed it would be enough, if you closed up with cement half of a hole, why should it be a problem? It should be fine. It should be no worse than if you closed up half the hole. So it's a proof. It should be a clear answer that in fact when you close up half the hole, it's not good enough. Amri, so we say like this, it's not a good comparison. Over there, we have the branches that are closing up the hole, and you're filling it up with cement. If you don't close it up with cement, so the branches themselves will not even stay in the hole. But where you close up half of the hole with cement, so if you're talking about some kind of cement that has the ability to stay, so it will stay. And therefore the question is, if that's good enough, since it's going to stay. And we don't have an answer to that question. Rav says, Behold, the sages said, If someone steals something which is bread, and then Passover passes over it, So we said that he can just say to him, Take your thing as is. I'm sorry, buddy, I know it's not worth anything, but this is the same object that I stole. Boy, Rav, Rav asks the following question. We turn to Kufayim Abayz, page 105b. Nishba Allah of Mahu. Let's say this person who had stolen this thing and now Passover passed over it, so it has no value, and he can just say, Take it as is. If he swears and he says, I didn't steal 
it. What's going to be the halacha? Do we say, if this thing will be stolen now from the person who stole it from the original person, so then there would be an obligation on the person who stole it originally to pay back money to the person he stole it from. So it's considered perhaps that he has denied money that he owes. And therefore you'll have whatever ramifications come along with the fact that it's a swear. Or perhaps no. Perhaps no. Right now it is in fact in front of him. It doesn't have any value. And therefore, it's not considered that he's denied money that he owes. And it's where it's not considered something significant at all. So the one says, Actually, this question, which was a question to Rava, it was obvious to Rava. I'm a Rava, because Rava said, Shari Ganafta. Ruvain says to Shimon, You stole my ox. And he says, No, I'm sorry. I'm, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't steal any ox of yours. So Ruvain says, what are you doing with it? I see it's right there. It's in, it's in your yard. It's mine. It says it's branded on it. Ruvain's sure. Ruvain's ox. What's going on? So he says, in fact, the reason that it's in my house is because you asked me to watch it. And then he swears that, in fact, he had been asked to watch it. And then he admits to the fact that, in fact, he stole it. Chai, so the Gemara says, in such a case, there will be an obligation for the person who made this swear, once he admitted, to have to bring a special korban, a special sacrifice for swearing falsely. And Rashi explains that this is despite the fact that when I am saying that I'm watching it for you, I'm admitting that this money is yours. But nevertheless, there's still be an obligation to bring the special sacrifice. Why should I repotter Asma Because by claiming that I'm watching it for you, as opposed to having stolen it, which is what it comes out in the end that I really did. So by saying that I'm watching it for you, so I will not have an obligation if it gets stolen for me or lost for me. Whereas if it's if I have stolen it, and my obligation is a different obligation as far as watching. If someone steals it from me or or it gets lost for me, I will still have an obligation to pay you back. So since what I said, what I swore, will accomplish something, I will indeed have an obligation because I swore falsely. The Gemara continues, If let's say he claims, instead of saying that he's, he's watching it without getting paid, he says, I'm watching it and I am getting paid. So such a claim also, where he admits afterwards that he swore falsely, that will also create an obligation on him to bring a special sacrifice for swearing falsely. Because the swear that he said, so as opposed to if he's a goslin, if he stole it, so he'll have an obligation to pay if anything happens, if it dies or, or one of its limbs break. So a person who's a Shomer Sacha who's getting paid to watch it, he will not have that obligation. So his swear did accomplish something, therefore... Since he swore falsely, he'll have to bring a special sacrifice for swearing falsely. Or if he claims that actually I borrowed it from you, so again I'll have an obligation to bring a special sacrifice for swearing falsely. Because a person who borrows, as opposed to a person who stole, he doesn't have an obligation if, let's say, the animal dies while it's working. Whereas a person who's a gazan, a person who stole it, will have an obligation. So his swear did affect something. Alma. We can deduce from the statement of Rabbi, even though that he's admitting, he's acknowledging the fact that this thing belongs to the person who's claiming it against him, since it will get stolen. So by his statement of saying, I am watching it for you, so he would make himself pot, he wouldn't have an obligation to pay anymore. So it's considered right now that he's denying it, and it's considered a significant swear. So to in our case, and where he stole a piece of bread, and Passover passed over, even though right now I could return it as is, and it has no value, since if it would get stolen, he would have to pay him full-fledged money, so him by, by swearing now, so he's denying what he would have to pay later, so it's considered right now that he's denying that he owes him money, and therefore it's considered a significant swear with all the things that come along with it. Yosef Rabbah, 
It should be Rabba. Rabba was sitting in the Kamar and he was saying over this whole piece that we just said. So Ravamar asked the following question of Rabba. The Kichish, but we have a Bryce that says like this. If somebody denies completely the claim of someone who's claiming that this object is his, so then he has to pay. So this would come to exclude a case where he's admitting to what the person is claiming. Case of what's the case? Shuri Gonafta. Rufin says to Shem, you stole my ox. He says, no, I didn't steal it. Rufin says, what do you have it for? It's, there it is. That's my, that's my cow. That's my ox. So he says to him, you stole it to me. You gave it to me as a present. Your father sold it to me. Your father gave it to me as a present. He was running after my cow. He came to me on his own. I found it that it was wandering around on the, on the, on the path. love. It's, in all these cases, he's admitting, it's yours, yeah, but there's some reason why it's by me. I'm, I'm somebody who's watching it for free. I'm watching it and I'm getting paid. I borrowed it from you. And he swore to whatever claim he was making and then he admitted that he actually stole it. So you might think there's an obligation. So that's why the verse comes to say, He has to completely deny. It's coming to exclude a case where he admits to the fact that it, the, whatever the claim was that the person originally made. So here it's explicitly not like what Rabbi said. Amar um, Tadura, he says to him, there was no thought in what you just asked. Why? When did this Brisa say this halacha? That he's talking about a case where this animal is around and he's saying to him, here, take the animal. When am I talking about that in fact is considered a swear, that it's a problematic swear, where the animal is not around? And Rashi explains the difference that where the animal is around, and he's saying to him, take the animal as it is. So then, it's not possible that at some point the swear would have made a difference because he's taking the animal immediately. But if the animal is not around, and therefore theoretically at some point it could get stolen or something could happen to it, and therefore the swear would possibly have a ramification later on, so then it's considered that the swear that he made has a significance, he's going to have to bring a korban, he's going to have to bring a special sacrifice in the temple. Now the Gemara goes through a few of the cases trying to understand in his rice exactly what was going on. In the case where he says to him, you have my animal. And the other guy responds, yeah, you sold it to me. In that case, where is it that he's agreeing to the claim? The mission seems to say, the Bryce, I'm sorry, seems to say that there's admission to the claim. Where's the admission to the claim? He's saying that you sold it to me. So the Gemara says, no, we need it for the following. The He says to him like this, I haven't given you money. Shukal Tarach. Vizil. So take your ox in place of money and go. So that's the case. That's how there's an admission to the claim. There's an admission that he had not paid him. What about the case where he says to him, you gave it to me. Or your father gave it to me. Where do we see any admission to his claim? So my answer is the Amr the person who was being claimed against, responds like this. That when you sold it to me, when you gave it to me, so you had said to me that I should do you some favor. And I haven't had the chance to do you a favor. Instead, do me a favor, take your ox back and go. I'm not, I'm not going to be involved in doing you favors. In the case where the guy said, I found it wandering on the path, so let the guy say to him, you should have returned it to me already. And Rashi explains that since he should have returned it, he knew exactly who he was supposed to return it to, so there's no greater gun of his, you can't find a better thief than a person who takes something that he knows who it belongs to, he doesn't return it to him. He says that I swear that I found this lost thing, it was yours, that I should return it to you. Tanya, we have a brisa. Amar ben Azi. Ben Azi says, There are three different types of swears in regards to if you have a single witness who's being cross-examined on the stand, being asked if he saw a lost object, and he's denying that he saw the lost object, and then later on he admits it. 
So you have three different cases where he's admitting it. Let's say it turns out that in fact he knew that it was lost, but he didn't know in, in whose possession it had been found. Or for example, he saw that someone had found a lost object, but he didn't know that it was this guy's lost object. Or in other cases where he doesn't know that it was lost and he didn't know that it was found. So the Gemara says, wait, if it turns out that he didn't know anything about it, nor about the person who found it, so then the original swear that he said he didn't know anything was true. So Amos, we say, no, this is actually what it should be. The case is talking about where, in fact, it turns out that he knew that it had been lost and that it had been found. So what's this going to have a ramification in what regard? Ravami says, that the issue has to do with the fact that he's not going to have an obligation. That no, in fact, this is going to have to have a ramification in regards to that there will be an obligation. It actually has to do with the following argument between Tanoi and the Tanoi of Abraisa. If someone causes a single witness to swear, so the single witness is denying that he knows anything about this case. For example, there's a claimant, and he's claiming against a certain person that that person owes him money. Now, this single witness, it turns out, does know the information, but he swore that he didn't know anything. So now, if he would have indeed said the testimony that he knows, so as a single witness, he wouldn't have been able to accomplish anything more than the fact that the person who's being claimed against would have to swear that he doesn't owe the money. So now, so if he wouldn't swear, so then in fact the person who's being claimed against would have to pay the money. So now when the single witness denies that he knows any information, he swears that he doesn't know any information, so in essence, in theory, he's causing him a loss, he's causing the claimant a loss. So in that case, so the Tanakam holds part there's no obligation. Rebbe Shimon says that there, there is indeed an obligation. Now, but my Kamifliki, so what are they arguing about? Mar Savar, so the one who says that there's an obligation to pay, that in fact there is an obligation because if you indirectly cause somebody a loss, so it's considered like you've caused them a loss directly. Mar Savar, and the one who says that there's no obligation is because he holds that an indirect loss is not significant enough to create an obligation. Amar Rav Sheshis, Rav Sheshis says as follows, Let's say somebody denies that a certain object is by him, that he's supposed to be watching it for someone else. So, Nasa of Gazlan. So Rashi says that if two witnesses come along, he didn't even swear anything. Two witnesses come along and say, in fact, he has something that belongs to someone else. So he becomes at that moment, actually from the moment that he originally stated his statement, he's considered a Gazlan, someone who stole the Chayv Einstein. And he's going to have an obligation, even if something happens to that object through no fault of his own. Vitanatuna, we have an additional bride. So, Vikichishba, the verse says, if he shall deny. So this teaches us that there's a prohibition, you're going to get punished for it. As Harminayin, where do we find elsewhere that there's a warning about such a thing? That's where the verse says, You shall not deny. My love, Maybe this is speaking about a case where you just deny without swearing, and witnesses came along, and that would be a proof to Rav Sheshes. So Mar says, No, it could be that we're talking about a case where he's getting punished for the fact that he swore falsely. Mar says, Hold on a second. Hamidik Tani Sefer, from the fact that it says in the end of the Braisa, it says another case I'm talking about swearing. We can do so. The first case is talking about where there was no swear. The Kotani Seva, because it says in the end, Vinij Mal Sheker, that in a case where he swears falsely, Lomanu Einish. So the verse is teaching us that there's a prohibition that incurs a penalty. So how do we know that there's a warning against doing it as well? That's why the verse says, You shall not say something false. From the fact that the end of the Mishnah, or the Brisa, is talking about a case where there was a swear, So we can do so. The first case is talking about a case where there was no swear. And again, it's a proof to Rav Sheshes. Amr, we say like, 
like this. Both cases, the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse, we're talking about a case where he swore. But we're talking about two different ways where it became clear that this person has sworn falsely. One case is talking about where he admitted to the fact that he swore falsely. And one case is talking about where witnesses came and said that he swore falsely. So therefore, there's two different types of obligations and two different types of cases, and that's why we need two different cases. Also, if witnesses came, so then he's going to have an obligation, even if something happened to the object that was stolen, even through no fault of his own. But in a case where he admitted, so there'll be a different ramification, which is that there'll be an obligation to pay the value of the thing that he stole, plus a fifth, and he'll also have to bring a special sacrifice in Asham.